Well, we're super, super excited to be um, uh, for Richard Wang to be here with us today. Richard is the CEO and founder of Kuberg. It's a California-based uh, company developing next-generation lithium metal battery cells. But what's really interesting about these cells is that they've developed a technology that actually has a 70% increase in energy density compared to just conventional lithium-ion batteries. So that really would be unlocking the uh, future of electromobility. And today's topic <clears throat> is related to um, unlocking electrification of aviation uh, through new battery technologies. So thank you, Richard, so much for, um, for being here today. And we're super excited for you to introduce us to your topic. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, today I'm going to be talking about uh, the, the future of batteries in the aviation industry. Um, and the aviation industry is something that uh, Kuberg has been pursuing for quite a number of uh, years now. Uh, really, when we closed our seed funding round with uh, Boeing's Venture Capital Group back in early 2018 is when we uh, really got serious about focusing on aviation as our core market. And I think this is something that Kuberg um, from a lot of other uh, battery companies, and I, and I would say aviation is both an industry that is, in some ways, extremely suited for early adoption of new technologies, but also in other ways, a very difficult industry uh, to get into. So definitely some some pros and cons, but overall, I think um, it's, it's a very compelling opportunity, especially for a uh, lithium metal uh, battery chemistry uh, that we're developing. So uh, just a uh, briefly about uh, the company. So we got founded in 2016. We spun out of uh, Stanford University uh, out of my PhD work. Uh, we're working on a uh, lithium metal battery technology. So that's a lithium metal anode replacing the graphite anode. And uh, we are accommodating the lithium metal anode uh, with a new and unique uh, liquid electrolyte that we have developed. And so this uh, new liquid electrolyte is a highly chemically and thermally and physically stable uh, and really designed for optimal lithium metal cyclability. Um, and that is what has allowed us to really uh, take our company forth in terms of developing uh, prototypes and shipping to customers and achieving better and better uh, cycle life and, and charging uh, rate results. Um, so the most recent uh, data release we provided a couple weeks ago uh, is a new milestone in our company's uh, history, getting up to 672 cycles. Uh, down to 80% capacity retention. Um, and as, as far as I know, it's a, the longest lived uh, independently verified uh, lithium metal cell results in the world. So uh, we're very excited about uh, how, how far we've come so far, but there's you know, much more, much, much further to go to really get this into uh, commercialization. And so I think that the, the two sort of, um, sort of maybe foundational principles of Kuberg that really led um, our strategy on technology and on markets uh, really were related, one, to a, a huge focus on manufacturability. Um, we actually started uh, our company as a solid-state battery company, ironically. Um, but after about a year you know, of exploring and, and, and experimentation, you know, my, my hypothesis was that solid-state batteries were, were intrinsically uh, incompatible with existing manufacturing systems, and that that would create a pathway to commercialization that would be incredibly onerous and expensive. And it really didn't seem to make sense to make a new battery technology that could not leverage uh, all of the existing 
know-how and manufacturing capabilities that have already been developed by the lithium-ion industry and that are continuing to get more and more optimized. So that's why why we ended up uh, pivoting towards pursuing uh, liquid electrolytes, um, which has allowed us to pr progress much, much faster to actually be shipping cells to customers and, and really getting designed into programs. I think the other key aspect that I think differentiates us, and I think my observation of why historically battery innovation and battery startups in particular have struggled so much to get products commercialized is this kind of um, sort of overly heightened focus on getting into either the automotive industry or, you know, depending on the chemistry, the, the grid storage industry. I mean, these are the two industries that, you know, attract obviously the most attention. They're probably ultimately going to be the highest volume consumers of, of batteries. And so I think logically, that's why many companies pursue them. But if you think about it, even for, for just a little bit, this kind of strategy really, I think, um, does not make a lot of sense. It, it's, uh, it's something that really flies in the face of how technology adoption typically happens, which is to say, you know, typically uh, and for any new technology, you have to seek out your early, early adopters and, and figure out who are the ones who don't have very high requirements and are willing to pay a huge premium and are willing to overlook some of your uh, flaws uh, because you have fundamentally solved this burning critical issue for them. Uh, and the reality, you know, the reason for that is because early technologies, by definition, are less mature. They don't have the economies of scale. They're not cost optimized. Um, you cannot compete head to head with um, something like a lithium ion battery factory that has been optimized over the past uh, 30 years in terms of the chemistry and in terms of the manufacturing processes and supply chains. Um, and if you look at grid storage and you look at uh, EVs, you know, the, the com commonality between the two of them is these are two of the highest volumes, but also by definition, uh, most commoditized battery industries in the world. And when you look at, um, I mean, grid storage, I think pretty obviously performance is not really a key criteria. It is a cost game ab above all else. But even in automotive, um, energy density is kind of almost like a tertiary performance metric at this point. Um, fast charge is still important, but really above all else, it's cost of the batteries that is hindering um, electrification in, in EVs. Um, so when you look at an industry with those kinds of dynamics, I think you can pretty quickly realize this is an industry that eventually will adopt new technologies, but it certainly is not going to be uh, one that will pull them in anytime soon. Um, and so our, our whole company strategy has been focused on what actually is the early adopter market for a lithium metal battery, such as the one we are developing. Um, and I think, you know, equivalently to how, really, if you look at Tesla, they, they did not directly go and try to make the mass market Model 3 or Model Y, right? They, they, they started with this, you know, fairly mediocre, low volume and expensive Roadster. And then, you know, that got them, you know, a little more mature to make the Model S and the Model X. And then after, you know, probably, I don't know, eight or 10 years, they got to the Model 3 and the Model Y ramp up. And even then, their mass market ramp up almost killed Tesla. Um, and the, I think the equivalent is happening in the battery industry, where if you don't focus on really being disciplined on your early adopters, um, no matter how much money you've raised so far, it's going to be very hard to get into the automotive industry. And so our version of, let's say, the um, Tesla Roadster market segment, in our uh, view, is, is aviation. Now, you know, the aviation is by no means a, a perfect market. 
Uh, it has a lot of challenges that shouldn't be overlooked, and I'll you know, talk through some of them uh, today. Uh, but fundamentally, if you look at sort of what are the things that can be resolved and cannot be resolved reasonably, it is a, on balance still, I think, a very sensible application for adopting uh, earlier technologies. And so fundamentally, you know, what aviation needs above all else is higher specific energy um, and specific energy combined with very high power as well. Um, so if, if you look at what is currently in development in the uh, industry, you have um, uh, a few segments of electric aviation aircraft that uh, dictate battery requirements. You have uh, essentially small electric electrified planes. So conventional takeoff from, from runways and airfields, um, seating typically up to nine passengers for ease of uh, certification for smaller aircraft designs. Uh, the second segment, and, and you know, typically can fly, fly maybe, let's say, 400 miles or so. The second segment is uh, a vertical takeoff uh, aircraft. Uh, so these are what you would sort of consider air taxis or maybe the cargo equivalent of, of air taxis uh, that do a vertical takeoff uh, with uh, multiple propellers and then transition into horizontal flight to fly like an aircraft uh, and then also land vertically. And so it's, it's like a hybrid between a uh, helicopter and an airplane. Um, and the unique capabilities really are enabled because of what electric propulsion can do for uh, motor motors and, and aircraft design and, and so forth. Um, and so the, these two segments are where I think most of the attention currently is in the industry and also where we are most focused. And, and if you look at, I think, the, the battery needs, um, the, the, the most demanding battery needs are in that vertical takeoff industry because of the vertical takeoff you have uh, essentially an extremely high uh, power requirement um, as you actually uh, take off, uh, typically on the order of you know, 5C to 6C uh, for 60 to 90 seconds, and then you transition into horizontal flight, uh, and then you're probably cruising at about, let's say, you know, 1C or so for on the order of uh, 30 minutes, let's say, for a typical flight. Um, and then you land also uh, vertical takeoff. Um, this, uh, this gets more challenging because uh, of all the different certification requirements and safety requirements that are imposed by uh, the FAA and their equivalent in Europe, uh, EASA. Um, and so I think a couple of the things that are really worth calling out that impact how people think about battery design and what adds overhead are uh, one, the, the safety of the system and two, the requirement for uh, emergency landing scenarios and flight reserves. And so first on, on the emergency landing side, you know, what makes this particularly difficult is, let's say your vertical takeoff aircraft has um, six uh, propellers, uh, is not, not an uncommon design. Um, you have to assume that you can uh, suffer a motor failure and of course still be able to land um, reliably in an emergency landing. And so if you have six rotors, one fails, you have to turn off the, the opposing one for symmetry to, to still balance your aircraft. So if you go from six to four, then that means your batteries then have to supply 50% more power um, to uh, 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 those uh, four, uh, four motors uh, so that they can uh, still sustain. I think actually the, the other scenario that's even more aggressive is if you have a battery failure and one of your battery packs fails and goes out of commission, 
then your other batteries have to then supply a lot more power uh, for that emergency landing. So these emergency landing profiles typically take you up to 8C or 10C, uh, very, very high uh, power rates uh, for, for a couple minutes at a time. And then this is combined with the, the other challenge that you need to maintain a what's called a flight reserve. And so um, I don't remember the exact time, but I think on the order of like uh, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, depending on uh, sort of what regulations you're flying under. Um, and essentially the idea is on, on any normal trip, you have to land with that much ability to fly even longer in case you have challenges landing and you have to find an alternative landing site and so forth. And that means you cannot use the full SOC of your battery. Typically, you only use about 60 to 70% at most uh, in a typical flight. And so when you add all these layers on, you really start eating away at what kind of energy density a lithium ion cell can really um, provide. And so uh, if you look at sort of a, the, the current gen lithium ion cells that can deliver that level of power, uh, typically, you're finding energy densities in the kind of 250, 260 watt hours per kilogram at best on the cell level. And then given that you cannot use you know, 30 to 40% of the energy, and then given the packaging, packaging requirements, which I'll get into, this ultimately makes uh, the usable energy really not enough. And so when we look at a lot of the aircraft programs that are in development today, obviously, everyone out of necessity is test flying with lithium ion batteries because that's all the only thing that's available. But if you look at uh, aircraft designs and you look at you know, how much of their mass is going to different components, the, the three sort of buckets are the, the, the airframe itself, um, the battery, and then your cargo and payload. And, and the challenge with a lot of these uh, systems is their mass fraction looks something like, uh, I don't know, 50% airframe, which is already you know, pretty good, um, and then maybe 40% uh, batteries because they need that much, that many kilowatt hours to fly a uh, useful range for, for the business models that they want to build. And then you're left with maybe 10% of your uh, aircraft mass as actual payload, whether it's paying passengers or, or cargo. And, and just conceptually, if you think about it, if you had like a 10% mass fraction or even like a 15% mass fraction, it's just really not an efficient way of you know, running a transportation system because you're not mostly, you're just flying around the pilot and you're flying around the batteries and you're flying around the airframe. You're not actually carrying that much useful cargo that's generating real value. And so that's the sig real significance of battery energy density and why there's such a strong drive towards next generation chemistries is if you can increase the uh, payload fraction and carry more cargo or carry more uh, passengers, that allows you to have fundamentally a much more valuable service per mile flown and per kilowatt hour consumed, which then amortizes and reduces all of your operating costs, whether it's the cost of the pilot, the sort of amortized cost of the batteries, the cost of the electricity, the amortized cost of the airframe, you're getting much better utilization overall out of the entire system. And so fundamentally, that's why a really, really great battery that is both very high energy and very high power is what is really demanded by the industry. Um, now, from, from here, you know, that's kind of the, the fundamentals of it, but then it gets more difficult because you could say, okay, well, let's say, you know, Kubrick has this 670 cycle lithium metal cell and, you know, we're getting, you know, we will be getting close to 400 watt hours per kilogram in a commercial cell design. You know, this seems like, it, you know, from first principles should be good enough, you know, what's missing. And I think, you know, what's really the other huge challenge in this industry is certification uh, and specifically well, what's called type certification, which is the certification of the design of the, all the systems in your aircraft for 
safety and reliability. And particularly so in the battery industry, uh, this is an area that um, the regulatory authorities don't have a lot of experience with. And the experience that they do have is primarily coming out of the batteries on the lithium ion batteries in the 787 that caught fire maybe you know, eight, eight or nine years ago. Um, and the regulations that they ended up writing were really based on the response to that incident of essentially a very, very small lithium ion battery on a big commercial airliner uh, catching on fire during charging due to manufacturing defects and internal short circuits. And uh, that regulation ultimately um, was designed in a very stringent way. Um, and you know, a, a number of the industry players didn't quite agree with how the regulations were drafted. But at the end of the day, it was a pretty small battery and it did not really move the needle so much on aircraft design. So people accepted these regulations as, as let's say, onerous as they are. And now, now the issue is that is the only regulation really that the FAA, for example, has on batteries. And now looking to apply the same regulation towards gigantic propulsion batteries that are 40% you know, of your entire aircraft weight. And, and at a point where if you apply the same kinds of certification requirements, it becomes nearly impossible to, to actually have a useful aircraft, especially with a lithium ion level of cell energy density. Um, uh, I think this is one of the other reasons why the industry is so keen to adopt a a more advanced battery technology is because there's so many challenges with certification and even more than just challenges, there's so much ambiguity and uncertainty with the certification pathway. Out of necessity, many companies that, that we know are actually pursuing what's called, to my understanding, a proprietary means of compliance. And so rather than just reading the standards that are on the books, they're going one-on-one you know, -on -one with the FAA and with the assets to negotiate their custom requirements and proving that custom requirements are also equivalently safe. Um, and so this, this has led to essentially a lot of confusion in the industry, a lack of standardization uh, on what really is safe or is not safe, and, and really a big divergence of both um, how different companies are pursuing certification and designs, as well as also a divergence between the US and Europe on certification approaches. Um, and so the uh, Europe with EASA has actually um, uh, taken their own approach on uh, eVTOL and on battery certification, uh, which is also you know, quite challenging to meet in its own right, but also different um, in some significant ways from what the FAA has previously drafted. And so between all the, these sort of um, unknowns, uh, the, the kind of key area where this really impacts battery design is really the module integration of uh, individual battery cells, because that module packaging of how you stack all your cells together and ensure reliability and ensure safety and ensure propagation resistance. If you have cells going to thermal runaway, that is the critical sort of piece of battery technology beyond just the cell, which you also need uh, to really get towards a certified product. Um, so, so it's a pretty significant development effort and one that, you know, in our belief, is most effectively done if you integrate cell development and model development. Um, and so we are currently cross-iterating on cell and chemistry developments along with module developments to really get to the most optimal systems level solution in a way that's not possible if you have a company that's either only developing cells or only developing modules, which is you know, uh, more typical uh, in, in the industry. And then our intent ultimately is to develop this fully uh, 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 sort of uh, efficient model containing our lithium metal cells and ultimately get it through 
uh, certification. So specifically through what's called a uh, TSO, uh, which is the equivalent of certification for a component uh, of an aircraft. Um, and so ultimately, if you can have this TSO'd battery module, that becomes then the building block that um, the aircraft OEMs can fairly readily adopt and integrate into their systems with much lower bar on retesting and validation and, and so forth. And we believe that's ultimately what will really unlock this industry because one, it'll help the OEMs solve all their battery certification headaches, something which they are not uh, naturally um, good at uh, compared to their talents at aircraft design. And it will fundamentally deliver a substantial uh, weight reduction, which really allows uh, these companies to achieve the, 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 the ranges and the, and the payload capacities and, and, and business models that they want to build to really realize the potential of electric aviation. Um, I, I think that, you know, final couple points sort of on what else is needed in aviation batteries um, that also make it difficult. Uh, so it's definitely not a trivial industry to get into. But the other two aspects are um, production certification and I would say kind of fleet management. Uh, so production certification is another requirement from the FAA and EASA to basically show that your manufacturing processes and supply chains are fully traceable and stable uh, so that the, 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 we can be assured that the product that you have passed certification with will stay the same and will not shift because of sort of uh, undetected um, uh, changes in uh, materials design or um, uh, quality lapses or any other potential manufacturing issues. Um, I heard the story yesterday from an um, uh, aircraft company I was visiting um, that uh, the FAA came in to look at actually the, the gloves that the inspectors were, were wearing, the nitrile gloves. And they look at, you know, the, the code on the gloves and it's like, you know, the, the code that they, they had specified with, which is the standards uh, part number for, for that glove. And then uh, they had a different glove at one point, which was the large size version, and it was dash L. And the FAA was not okay with the dash L because it was different from what they had uh, promised in their specifications. So it's like extremely nitty gritty and uh, detail oriented. Um, so it requires a unique approach to manufacturing systems, uh, which also is something that's a fairly sort of a different type of investment and mindset from standard uh, battery, battery manufacturing systems. Um, and then the final, final aspect of this is really, I would say, the sort of fleet aspects of this. So how do you manage the batteries in your fleet? And ultimately, what is the impact of the batteries on the economics and on the carbon emissions of electric aviation as a whole? Um, and so the batteries are you know, easily 30 to 40% of the weight of the aircraft. They are also one of the biggest sort of economics drivers, both positive and negative, of aircraft operation. Um, and they are also actually, uh, because of the sort of uh, manufacturing impact of batteries and the carbon impact of manufacturing, one of the significant sort of um, drivers of carbon emissions associated with electric aviation. And so if you, if you look at, um, uh, for example, the, the um, cost argument, right? Uh, ultimately, cost comes down to a few factors. It comes down to your dollar per kilowatt hour. It comes down to how many cycles you can sustain. Um, but it also comes down to energy density in a very significant way. And the reason for that is what I discussed previously, which is that higher energy density allows you fundamentally to utilize your aircraft and your batteries in a much more efficient way by actually carrying 
more people and more cargo, um, that's much more valuable than let's say the batteries themselves. Um, and so, so battery, reduction in battery weight is fundamentally a substantial sort of economic argument to make the business models of these uh, aircraft OEMs more attractive. Um, so it's kind of those three pillars that really drive the economics of electric aviation. And in terms of the carbon impact of, of aviation, uh, a pretty significant portion, kind of 30 to 40% of sort of the estimated carbon impact of electric aviation, um, you know, it's going to be low, obviously, much lower than current aviation, sort of on par with even, you know, driving an EV around uh, per mile. But uh, the, the manufacturing impact of batteries is one of the most significant elements. And um, uh, Huberg, as part of uh, Norfolk, uh, we are a part of uh, uh, Norfolk, which is a, a leading European manufacturer of uh, automotive-grade batteries at a gigafactory scale. Uh, Norfolk is also pioneering, really, the lowest carbon content uh, batteries in the world with um, sustainable sourcing of materials through to 100% clean energy uh, powering their, their factories, um, and also a very prominent uh, recycling effort for managing end-of-life cells and reclaiming all the metals uh, from these batteries. Uh, they're already in operation. Their gigafactory is putting out the first commercial cells. That They're going to build one of the world's largest recycling facilities for batteries in the next year. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, not, it's not a pipe dream anymore. The recycling works. They've proven it out. You know, more than 95% reclamation rates of the critical metals, um, and it's economical as well. You know, like ultimately, having recycling actually is a significant competitive advantage because it stabilizes their uh, materials costs in, in an era where material scarcity is an increasing challenge for cell manufacturers. And so, all these elements you know that, that I talk about are are equally or even more critical for electric aviation because aviation uses batteries on such an intense level with such a large portion of your vehicle's carbon impact coming from your batteries. And so the ability to have cleaner manufactured batteries and with an end of life recycling solution so that you know after your battery uh, runs for about a year and it goes through its cycles and it reaches end of life, uh, you have a way to actually reclaim that and put it into uh, new batteries ultimately really closes the loop on the circularity and emissions piece to really make sure electric aviation has the maximum possible beneficial impact from a carbon perspective. Um, so, so I, I think the, the sort of the couple of themes maybe of every, everything that I talked about to, to wrap up here um, are that uh, aviation is a very attractive uh, market for next-gen batteries fundamentally because the, the product market fit is excellent and there's a strong willingness to pay for innovation and for new technology because of the value of the weight savings that is delivered. Uh, but it's also by no means a trivial industry to get into for all the reasons that I talked about. You really have to be very dedicated and focused on entering this market to, to really get it right. Um, and I think the other theme is really that there are a lot of things you need to do, right? And, and fundamentally, this is an industry where having a vertically integrated battery supplier is a significant competitive advantage because it's not enough just to develop a chemistry, it's not enough just to develop a cell, it's not enough just to develop a module. You also need the, the sort of uh, traceable clean, clean manufacturing, you need the recycling, all of these have to come into it for to truly have a sort of holistic solution for the aviation battery question. Um, and that's really the, the, the business that we're trying to build here with Kuberg um, and with Norfolk. Ultimately, when you look at the impact of batteries on this nascent field, uh, you know, our, our thesis is really that the batteries are as critical 
uh, to electric aviation as the jet engine was and enabling the um, jet airline era. Uh, because fundamentally, it is completely about the batteries. That is the single biggest risk uh, in determining how this industry proceeds and how fast it gets ramped up and ultimately how much impact it really, really has. Does it remain a niche uh, form of transportation that only serves wealthy people or that only serves very short short flights? Or does it actually truly uh, realize the full potential that people are hoping for in, in transforming how people move around around cities and also uh, uh, regionally? Um, so yeah, I think that's, I think uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there um, and I'm happy to take questions and guide the discussion or, uh, where people want. Thank you so much, Richard. I think this was an absolute fascinating um, introduction of the topic, and also I loved kind of the introduction also of your of your journey. You know, starting with Kuberg and fascinating how you started on solid state, and then you know stuck with the lithium metal and liquid electrolytes. Go through the acquisition you also mentioned. Um, super fascinating, and um, yeah, there's I think from my side already lots of questions. I wrote a few down, but I know there's also quite a few in the audience, and already some of them already put them in the chat. So feel free to keep doing so, and if you'd like to ask a question, also. In, in, in on audio, um, feel free to just raise your hand and we might also um, ask some of you to join us on stage as well. But maybe just a really quick interlude, just in between um, just who we are and like, you know, what we're doing here. Uh, so you see Myram and myself, um, we're co-hosting this session and that's part of the Battery Evolution Clubhouse Club. Um, as you can see in the title, this has been running for 52 sessions by now. And we love to feature, you know, amazing individuals such as Richard, but also discuss all kinds of battery topics. We had sessions on recycling, as Richard also mentioned. Um, we had sessions on all kinds of different technologies, um, different, you know, policy questions. So, yeah, it's a really great platform to discuss all of these important topics. And also there is a recording of this, um, as you can see also in the title. And these are part of the Battery Insiders podcast. And you can find this podcast much anywhere you listen to your podcast so spotify apple podcasts android all these other platforms so yeah maybe just just as a quick word in between and now i just want to really invite everyone who has a question to to raise your hand and come up on stage and while we're waiting to some people if they want to come uh, maybe i can just start off with one question because i found really fascinating um, you spoke about, um, one, you spoke about C-rates, and just for people here a bit newer to the battery field, maybe, um, you know, C-rate is a way to kind of, um, you know, more easily say kind of what is the charging and discharge rates we're using for these batteries. And you mentioned numbers, I think I wrote it down here, I think you mentioned in usage about 5 to 6C, so this would be, I think 6C would be then 10 minutes um, a charge or 10 minutes discharge in this case. And then you mentioned even, you know, for some of these emergency situations, the battery has to be able to handle like 10C or 8 to 10C. So that's about six minutes uh, in the discharge or six minute charge. So that's quite high for, for people in the industry. If you look at um, electric vehicles, at least the numbers I know are usually about 1C or so. So I was just curious because you mentioned also these over 700 or no, 600, I think 72 cycles you mentioned with 80% capacity, which is awesome, as you said. Um, so did you test already these kind of higher C um, scenarios? Is this like more lower C rates? I'm just curious to understand um, where you're standing on these current requirements at this point. Yes, yes. So, so there, there's a um, great question because there, there are many, many different ways to measure um, cycle life, uh, especially in aviation where you have all kinds of different profiles, you know, standard flight profiles, emergency profiles, longer DOD, shorter DOD for different kinds of business models. And all that impacts really the sort of effective cyclability that you get. 
So, so our, our cycle life measurement was uh, our nominal cycle life, um, which is, I think, typically how other, other battery companies also report uh, cycle life. So that was a 100% depth of discharge, so zero to 100%, um, with a, a C over two charge to our charge, and then a one C discharge. Um, so this is like pretty standard sort of nominal cycling rates that you that you can use to compare with other chemistries and also to compare with lithium ion cell spec sheets. But you know, to your point, like this is kind of the nameplate cycle life. But ultimately, you know, of course, what customers care about is sort of how many flights can you really do. And so, you know, what we find is, you know, the the, the mapping is, is happens in a very let's say non obvious way. Um, for, for, for a few different reasons. You know, one is, of course, your point that the, uh, the especially the landing is, is very power hungry. And especially if you need to do an emergency landing, you need to, that means you need to reserve a high level of power even at end of life to do an emergency landing. Um, and so when you think about, let's say, capacity loss, um, as you lose capacity, you're having less and less, for the same amount of flying, you're having less and less reserve SOC left which means resistance is increasing over time because of your SOC shift. You know, in, in addition to that, typically cells will just build up resistance over time, which also leads to sort of um, more and more challenges with that emergency landing. And so when you look at, I think, what typically limits cycle life in a flight, pro flight profile, it ends up being this emergency landing requirement of like 8 to 10 C while you're at you know, relatively low SOC at the end of your flight, like 30%. SOC left. Um, and so part of this is also most likely companies will pursue an adaptive cycle life. And as your battery ages, you will then reduce the, the amount of time you're flying that you're rating your, your, your uh, battery for so that you can preserve enough SOC so that you still have the power to deliver your emergency landing. So that's why like the definition of cycle life is, is fuzzy because like, honestly, like at the end of the day, it would be this highly sophisticated sort of adaptive um, flight use. Um, on the other hand, there is also a positive in that when you do limited DOD cycling, we do see significant increases on the other hand in the longevity and stability of the battery. Uh, and so this allows you to sort of not kind of counteract the, the sort of negative uh, impact of the very high uh, power requirement on landing. Um, so, so, you know, I guess to summarize, you know, we also get several hundred cycles with uh, typical flight uh, profiles. Uh, right now, uh, actually, with you know some shorter sites, flight profiles, we get more than a thousand flights out of our battery currently. But cycle life certainly is something you know we continue to to work on as we get to our first commercial flight. Richard, I also had a question uh, regarding uh, the adaptive cycle life. So, as degradation occurs, um, you'd mentioned cycle life changes, and so how does that impact the um, certification requirements or in a practical sense what sort of testing is required to get certified um you know for safety for applications in um in flight maybe for longer flights is it that you would need to um, run your batteries or your modules in longer flights over a period of time So right, so the whole question of certification is a it's a very complex one, and so you know the the sort of additional complexity in the topic we're discussing on you know adaptive flying and how do you manage your battery to get the most uh, 
use out of it is complex because you then start to introduce questions on uh, battery management systems and, and software systems that, and software systems that in this case, all, you know, clearly would end up being you know, mission critical in some sense, because obviously if you can't do an emergency landing anymore, then you have exceeded your, your design envelope. Um, so, and the thing about software is it's incredibly difficult. And for my, I'm not an expert on this, but from my understanding, it's incredibly difficult and onerous to develop software for the aviation industry, especially flight critical software. And especially after the 737 MAX, the FAA is even, I think, more paranoid about software. And so, um, you know, this is some, an area that we are still investigating as to kind of what are the requirements needed to pass certification. And then how would you actually then implement, let's say, a smart way to charge your batteries or a smart way to, to use your batteries during flight without, let's say, conflicting or running into challenges associated with certification and ultimately with um, reliability. I don't think anyone has answered this in the industry um, um, yet, or at least not, not that I've seen. Um, I think uh, because I think with certification, I think the, the challenge here is it is a fairly um, ambiguous uh, terrain, and so the certification for batteries, it, for the most part, is very physical in nature. They don't really talk about you know how should you cycle your 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 batteries and under what conditions and you know, how this impacts everything. It's more kind of like, we're assuming your battery is going to fail, it's going to catch on fire, induce you know, this number of thermal runaways and show us it's not going to take down the rest of your path in your aircraft. And so like that kind of worst case engineering is helpful because it almost sidesteps the question of, um, you know, do you have issues? Because intrinsically you need to build in resiliency to failures. Uh, but I think the whole sort of aspect of the software side of it on how you operate your batteries is 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 pretty fuzzy still. I, I think there, but the, but clearly like an area with a lot of opportunity and worthwhile solving ultimately with the with the authorities. Thank you so much, Richard. Uh, we've got quite a few questions actually in the chat, and also we've invited uh, some speakers who have raised their hands. So we'll start with one of the chat questions from Ken. Um, he's asking, what are the barriers to implementing lithium metal batteries if they can perform at that uh, performance level of 70% longer? And do you see that these batteries can be used in electric vehicles? Yeah, so I think I answered a little bit of that uh, in the sense that it really is goes beyond the cell. I mean, the cell is obviously the core of it, but it goes beyond the cell to really looking at module design and how do you integrate these cells into a a, a battery module and package that ultimately passes the certification requirements. So really, module development and certification are the two big uh, focuses for us um, right now. Um, as to the EV question, um, yes, uh, they could certainly also be used in EVs. We are working with some like uh, very high performance automotive brands for you know our early foray into automotive, where you know you do have a better product market fit because they care more than the typical. EV does about energy and power, um, but uh, you know I think we're going to take our time getting into the EV space because, in our opinion, sort of premature entry into the EV space is what has killed many many better battery startups uh, over time. So um, the mass market stuff I think is still quite a ways off because honestly, at the end of the day, there are more important problems that can be solved with uh, advanced batteries. I mean, it's aviation, it's also you know, long haul trucking, it's maritime transportation. Those are areas where you can actually solve a much bigger problem compared to the existing solution. Whereas in EV, it's always going to be a 
incremental improvement. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Richard. And then I think Roger has a few questions. Good to see you, Roger. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks, Richard. Really, really interesting, really insightful um, overview of it all. I, I'm just looking at um, Vertical Aerospace, who, who floated in, in the States on the market a, a while ago. Um, I've got you know, pretty good valuation. And I know because I went along to an event of theirs in London recently, they've got $5 billion of orders for their vertical aer aerospace craft, which is kind of nuts. It's hard to comprehend. But their battery partner they announced recently is Molycell. And I'm just going to read you a bit from Aviation Today, which kind of confirmed what you explained. It's not a long passage. It's just a couple of sentences. But I think it's useful just to reconcile what you said with what they're saying. Um, they're using cylindrical lithium-ion cells. They're not very specific on what chemistry exactly. But they say the main, main advantage of Molycell's battery cell, according to the company's representative, is low impedance, referring to both internal resistance and reactants. The low impedance battery cell technology is well suited for applications requiring a high rate of power discharge during the takeoff and landing phases, as well as fast charging capabilities to increase ridership capacity. Um, since the battery cell is designed for high power discharge, and fast charge, the life cycle thus is much better compared to high impedance types of energy cells. I mean, th there's a lot more they go on to explain. But what fascinates me is much of what you said um, in regard to the challenge and the fact you now have companies at market, even with well, pretty, pretty impressive order books. And, and so it kind of, in one way, feels like we're there already, but we're kind of not. So. It, yeah, it's it's a fascinating moment in time for sure. But my, my main question above all of that was, do you think we'll see specialist battery um, manufacturers, cell manufacturers, specifically for aviation, given a lot of what you've outlined and, and explained? Do you think there'll be a divergence between the people that look after that market compared to the people that look after electric vehicles, you know, cars and stuff? Or do you think they'll be the same? Yeah, yeah, good, good question, and, and a great, great topic to touch upon. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, I do think that the partnership that Vertical did with Molly Cell was pretty smart because I would say a company like Molly Cell, and Molly Cell, you know, does make some of the highest performance cylindrical cells on the market, as far as I know. Um, I think they're a decent bit better than anything I've seen from Samsung or LG, for example. Um, and they are, they are, you know, a little more premium, a little more specialist, but that makes sense for what you want in an aviation product. So I, I think, you know, that that was a, a pretty wise partnership. You know, that that being said, though, the, the, we, the, um, the, the aviation industry is one that is filled with a lot of hype. And, you know, I'm not, I won't name specific names. Different companies are at different levels of that spectrum of what do they assert publicly about what they can develop in a certified aircraft and what is actually, you know, physically possible according to the laws of physics and the supply of existing battery cells. And I think the reality that you will see is as you actually get through certification, nobody's through certification yet or even close to it. As you actually get through certification with a certifiable design, which most companies don't have, the actual performance and operating range and payload of those aircraft are going to come down a substantial amount versus what they have promised in public. And, and that is the core challenge, is that as these certification requirements work their way, their way through the aircraft designs, um, 
it becomes very hard to actually close the design with a lithium ion battery, even a very good one uh, like for a Molly cell. And, and that's something that is not really being realized yet. Um, you know, as to the orders quest, uh, comment, you know, it is in this industry as in others, it is actually very, very easy to get orders if you make big promises, but to, you know, <laughs> delivering on, on those orders is really the key point. It's the execution that is the most difficult aspect, whether it's batteries or, or aircraft. Uh, there have also been plenty of battery companies that have sold lots and lots of batteries, but uh, in theory, but you know, money doesn't change hands until you actually execute. Uh, that's really the, the, the true test for, for aviation companies. And nothing against vertical specifically. They seem like a very good company, but just the you know, general comment on the industry. Yeah. Uh, you're specific. Yeah, so I was just going to say, I think you're right in that business of orders, you know, being uh, an aspect of valuation because, you know, look around the electric vehicle market. There's lots of companies now, or certainly a number I think we could all mention, that have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of orders of a given vehicle. But yeah, it's yet to either appear um, or, or, or much more other than either renderings or, or a sort of one-off demonstration. So no, I mean, that, that, that's a very mm -hmm. good point. The, the one other thing I just quickly wanted to say, and I don't want to diverge and go off into a different thing because this is a specific conversation in a particular group, but I'm on the advisory board of um, uh, Val Miftikoff's uh, business, which is focused on um, Zero Avia, that is, which is focused oh, yeah. on... Um, uh, not batteries at all. And, and, and Val has fantastic knowledge and experience. Uh, he's a PhD physicist. He's a very smart guy in batteries, but took the approach that for the type of aircraft and the range that they're going to fly, um, not eVTOL, by the way, um, and this will be converting existing uh, uh, aircraft, um, that the way to go was was uh, was very different from, from, from batteries. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Anyway, look, I've taken up enough time. There's plenty of other people that want to talk. So, but, but thank you, Richard. Really enjoying this. This is a very interesting discussion. Th thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, the point on hydrogen is a good one as well. The, the, there, the, I think there will certainly be a space in aviation for hydrogen too. It's going to be in different segments of aviation will end up pursuing different forms of electric propulsion and decarbonization. And so yeah, hydrogen, it really is a complementary technology to, to batteries. Um, at the end of the day, if batteries are good enough, batteries will always be the cheapest, most efficient solution. For electrification, but there are some segments that are just impossible to electrify with batteries. And that's where you get into hybrid electric, and that's where you get into hydrogen fuel cells and so forth. That's really, really interesting. And Mark, I know you've got some questions on recyclability, so uh, the floor is all yours. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Richard, for your presentation. Uh, I learned a lot about aviation and the use of batteries in aviation from your talk today and the uh, uh, certification process. But my question is about the recycling, which you, of course, brought up and how you're integrating the recycling uh, from the start into the process rather than as an afterthought in the design of the manufacturing and recycling on site to mitigate supply challenges with that. So my, my question is, are you using, I guess, what? technologies are you using? Are you using a third party? Are you doing it in-house? That's the first question. Then the second question is, have you designed your batteries such that it can be more easily remanufactured or reused in a different segment uh, or recycled at the end of their life? Yes. So on the recycling question, uh, this is not something we're developing internally. <laughs> 
we definitely don't have enough resources to pursue all these things. And you know, this is the beauty of being part of a much larger parent company. So we are leveraging basically the recycling capabilities developed at Nordfolds in, in Sweden. Um, they spent a lot of money and a lot of effort uh, developing the process, which I, my understanding is some sort of uh, hydro metallurgical process where you dissolve the, um, um, the the materials and then sort of extract up, extract out the individual metals in, in solution is my kind of layman's understanding of, of the process. Um, but we are just simply using their process. We're not developing our, our own. Um, uh, as for the second question on design for recyclability, uh, you know, I'll admit this is something, especially when we first got started, that really was not in our minds. I would say we, let's say, fortuitously landed in a scenario where it does seem like it's pretty recyclable. And, and the main reason for that, I would say, is because we've designed our cell design and chemistry for high levels of manufacturing compatibility with lithium-ion cells. And so the cathode we use is the same NMC cathode you have in a lithium-ion cell, so the same kinds of compounds and the same crystal structures. And the cell design is also very similar because it's manufactured in the same way, the same separator as well. Um, and, and so at the end of the day, because so many things are, and, and it's a liquid electrolyte, it's not a solid electrolyte. And so for, because we've designed it for manufacturability, it, it happens that then a lot of the recycling processes that have been developed for lithium-ion batteries also do seem quite compatible with our lithium metal chemistry because of that, those manufacturing similarities. So it's kind of like two sides of that same point. Whereas if you look at solid state batteries, um, they're going to be very different in terms of how you manufacture them. And then con con consequently, uh, they are also expected to have significant recycling challenges with a solid electrolyte, particularly being a challenge to extract out and separate from your, your uh, valuable you know, nickel and, and cobalt and so forth. I'm curious. Um, thank you. I just, I was thinking second life also just as a, as a third thought. I don't know if you've uh, thought about that uh, regarding your uh, Interlight batteries. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, it's not only us. A lot of the aircraft OEMs are also thinking about second life. You know, a lot of them are, are envisioning sort of a second, and it's because aircraft have such a high requirement on that you know, crazy power on emergency landing and on safety and reliability. So they're going to be taken out of the aircraft much earlier in their full life compared to say an end of life EV battery. So, I mean, you know, and it's gonna be a fantastic battery, a super high performance battery. So I think the second life in aviation seems much more likely than most other types of second life applications that haven't panned out as much so far. Um, a lot of people are thinking, okay, we'll put this into some sort of grid storage application at the airport. And then maybe we could have uh, the second life batteries powering, let's say, fast chargers that are uh, charging up uh, the aircraft. I think that's certainly a possibility, but I, I think it doesn't even still capture the full valley potential. And so this is another area where we're working with North, the broader Norfolk team on um, market development because they are serving many, many different segments of mobility and grid. And our view is there are higher performance uses of uh, that second life aviation battery, which is still an amazing battery at the end of the day compared to just putting it on the grid. So one idea we have, for example, is long-haul trucking. Uh, long-haul trucking is an area that's pretty cost-constrained, but they're also very, very sensitive to battery weight because it directly impacts uh, cargo capacity and range. And so if you could put a, a lower-cost second-life battery, but still a battery that's extremely advanced and high-performance and lightweight into a long-haul truck, you could actually unlock a pretty valuable second-life use uh, of those aviation batteries. Thank you, Richard. I, I wish your company success. Thank you.
Thanks a lot, Mark and Richard and Srivam. Would you like to go next? Srivam, are you here? Otherwise, we can go to Mia in the meantime. Mia? Yeah, hi. Hi, Richard. Um, it's so great to hear the presentation. Um, I So you mentioned traceability um, and that being really important as part of the manufacturing process. Um, I actually worked for Northvolt last summer in Sweden um, a couple of times. And uh, I was just really curious where Kubrick is um, toward digitalization and traceability. Um, yeah, I'm also a computer science student, um, which is why that aspect of it is pretty really interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we have a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, data science systems. These are currently more oriented on the R&D side of it to enable rapid iteration and design of experiments as we continue improving our cell chemistry. Um, that being said, we are increasingly moving into the sort of um, uh, supply chain traceability and digitalization efforts. This is an area, another area where it is highly beneficial to be part of a larger parent company because we don't need to invent all of these different elements from scratch. Norfolk is, of course, already doing a significant element with digital systems in how they track supply chain and how they track quality and, and yield and, and process and so forth. Um, and so we are we actually uh, adopted an early version of the Norfolk. Um, manufacturing data systems for use in our uh, pilot line. And, and our longer term goal is to adapt sort of a future version of the, the Norfolk systems for our full manufacturing system, and then adapting it obviously for aerospace requirements that, that are unique uh, to, to this industry. Um, uh, but this is an area where we, it's kind of, kind of the bread and butter of what we do. We're a very data oriented company. Um, maybe not unusual for, for startups at least. And then, you know, layering on the sort of systems and architecture from Norfolk allows us to build this in a much more efficient manner. Okay, that's super interesting here. Um, I worked on specifically the Trace team. So I'm wondering if you've heard of them or I know that they have a lot of internal products, but... Um, yes, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not so that... closely connected to that that project, unfortunately, but I think we are working with the whole uh, data team that was previously led by Landon um, that's developing a lot of the, the systems. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, it was it was super interesting to be able to visit their factory and see how like a specific cell they could use like a QR code and see exactly mm -hmm. like all the specs about it. Um, yep. So that, I think even going down to the, the sheet to sheet traceability, I think is the ultimate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, vision. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, thank you. That's awesome yeah. to hear. Thank you so much, Mia. Uh, Mariano. Okay, hello, Richard, uh, Mar, and Simon. Thank you for the fantastic lecture. Uh, I had a couple of questions, uh, Richard. Uh, you explain many challenges, of course. You explained uh, when somehow the part of the batteries you, let's say, solve, maybe case study plays with 40 kilowatt hour and many cyclers. I have a, a, a question about the model integration. You say that it's very relevant for the certification. On that, I had uh, 
the idea if that is so important model certification did you search also a battery swapping option that could be on models that's one one question and the other question is also uh, from the uh, cells itself did you maybe i don't understand you correct but uh, is this a possibility to have hybrid cells that give a high power cell in one chance and the other that's when you are with the navigation then it's it's another kind of of cells it is the best for the, that requirement this hybrid thank you yeah um good question so for the battery swapping this is ultimately not really our decision to make because this is more of an aircraft uh, architecture question. Uh, most companies are not doing uh, battery swapping because they believe the weight overhead uh, is is excessive and not worth the trade-off of, let's say, faster um, uh, sort of turnaround time on the ground. Um, the one company that I do know is, I think, doing battery swapping that has announced publicly is Volocopter in, in Germany. So. Interesting to see. I don't think the you know, it's clear you know, which one will ultimately win out, but both approaches are being tried. The benefit of battery swapping is that you are much gentler on your batteries because you can put them on the ground and charge them slowly and not stress them out because they're not limiting your turnaround times anymore. So it, it does have benefits in terms of how you treat your batteries, but um, with, of course, mechanical mechanically uh, more overhead. Uh, most of the aircraft are designed for good serviceability, though, because the idea is probably within a year, given high utilization rates, you have to, your batteries aren't end of life and you have to swap them out. So from a maintenance and service perspective, the, the models are designed for easy serviceability. Um, and your second question is about um, sort of hybrids, like hybrid cells, two different energy power cells and power cells. Um, so this is not something I, that I think has typically been done in the industry and including in aviation, I have not seen anyone pursue it. I, I think typically because it's believed that the overhead required isn't sufficient. Um, uh, is it sufficient to, 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 to warrant the, the sort of uh, uh, improvements that, uh, that you get? Um, I, I think, so the, the lithium metal cell that Kubrick is developing in some sense can do both very well. And the reason for this is fundamentally that we have such a lightweight anode that the energy density implicitly is already very, very high. Um, even though we design actually our cell design to be a very high power design. And so internally, if you say like, if you compare it to a lithium ion cell, you would say the cubic cell is absolutely a high power cell exclusively, but we are still able to also get very good energy because of the chemistry innovation by using lithium metal anode. And so that's, that's the, the benefit of um, just advancing the technology is you're not stuck in the original trade space of really, really compromising on energy versus power and being in an area where you don't have enough of either, potentially. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, man, and Richard. I think to you, let's try it again. Uh, hello, everyone. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Yes. OK, fantastic. Um, thank you, Richard, for that great overview. Um, I was uh, wondering if you could provide a quick overview on the challenges of designing your battery modules uh, and packs with, with the cells that you're designing right now. How, how, how are these challenges different from conventional lithium-ion cells? Uh, you've already hinted at 
some of the safety requirements um, in the DL311A and also uh, some uh, on the software functional safety side of things. But how are you deriving the performance and mechanical requirements for potential customers? Because the different aircrafts that are being developed right now are on different regions of, let's say, a Ragoni plot, right? And they have very different fast charge requirements, as you just uh, mentioned some time ago. So how are you approaching uh, you know, deriving the requirements and, and uh, providing uh, mechanical design on, on the module side? Yeah, I think this is the this is a, this is a great question because it's something that we also ask ourselves um, all the time. Uh, so, so I think the first aspect of your question was really, I think, more about uh, what are the differences in integrating lithium metal cells into a model that we are seeing for aviation that's not typical in lithium ion. Um, and I think the two areas are that lithium metal cells and really any sort of more advanced chemistry tends to have more swelling uh, on a relative basis because you don't have that host structure of the graphite to host your lithium ions. So you have more swelling and somewhat more sensitivity to uh, face pressure applied on your cell. And so that changes a bit of how you design your intercell materials uh, to accommodate the swelling, but, but nothing, nothing crazy, but it, it is different. Um, the other area is uh, really the, the propagation resistance. And okay, any, any battery will need propagation resistance in aviation, but the specific, um, Thermal runaway failure modes for lithium metal cells is also somewhat different given you have a lithium metal anode rather than a graphite anode. And so that also causes you to change your model design in different ways to accommodate for lithium metal uh, more often. So those are the two areas, big areas that we are working on as we develop our own module. I think as to the question of, let's say, you know, module standardization, um, I think this is critical and also difficult to do. Uh, and so, so it's critical. Um, and we've really pushed for a standardized cell for aviation as well as a standardized module. And the reason for this is that aviation is for a, a very long time, probably at least through 2030, a pretty low volume industry. And, and so in such a low volume industry, uh, it really doesn't make economic sense to design custom products and make custom manufacturing lines for every different uh, customer. Because at the end of the day, it's gonna be wildly expensive and you know, we're not going to be able to make a business out of it. We need to drive towards standardization as an industry, even though uh, right now we're still pretty far away from it. Uh, so we are doing our part to drive that standardization with our customers. And implicitly, you know, we're going to, you know, four or five of our top customers and collecting their aircraft level requirements and seeing what is that sort of common set of requirements that we could design to in a module. And it's not always... You know, there is no perfect common set because intrinsically people have different aircraft designs. Some people have really, really different aircraft designs. Um, some people are doing CTOL, some people are doing VTOL, as, as you said, you know, meaning energy or power. Um, so it's impossible to find a perfect common set, but you can still do your best to figure out what is at least kind of the standard battery that can maybe at least serve 70 or 80% of the market decently well, even though it's not perfectly optimized for a single customer. And I think when you look at our customers, I think they also tell us that they really do want, I mean, everyone would like a perfectly tailored solution, but realizing that economically, it, it does make more business sense to go towards a standardized solution that benefits from greater uh, economies of scale. I, I think at the end of the day, um, I think there is a vision that at least you could have a standardized cell and potentially standardized module uh, for the industry as a whole. Um, but I think that's also 
I think it's an attractive vision because especially in aviation, the volumes are low, but it's also, I think, a, a, a very ambitious and uncertain uh, vision because at the end of the day, a lot of aircraft have very different designs. Perhaps as designs really do standardize the way that you know a 737 looks very similar to an A320, uh, perhaps eventually, we'll, you know, in a couple more decades, we'll get to that point in electric aviation. And then you could say, okay, just as you have one jet engine that works or one format of jet engine, you could have one standard battery that works as well. But I, I think we're still quite a ways away from that as a sort of industry standard. Okay, I think it's a really great comparison to compare them to, to uh, jet engines. As a quick follow-up, I'm wondering um, if... Uh, you have any rough numbers on the voltage of these battery packs? I don't think I've seen any uh, particular numbers on on power and voltage for uh, aircrafts. Is there a rough range that you're working on? I think a lot of the ones we've seen are sort of in that 400 volt range. I think similar. I think to my understanding, to like a Tesla voltage. I think some people are looking at 800 volts, but less less common. But but I, I think you know it's similar to EVs, I guess high level. All right, great. Thanks. Basim, have you got a question? No, I'm, I'm enjoying the <laughs> the discussion. I'm uh, because I'm I'm working in in uh, hard aerospace, which is working with electric aviation. So it's uh, it's a really interesting discussion. I was in Orthoboard before, so uh, it's very interesting. So I'm I'm enjoying the discussion. I I, will, I have a couple of comments, but that I can take later. Maybe more important the questions, if you would like. We've got some time, so uh, please, the floor is all yours. Yeah, thank you. So um, I'm just have a couple of comments on, for example, what um, was mentioned regarding the power and and um, energy optimized batteries. For example, there is a big difference when we are talking about VTOLs versus CTOLs. So for maybe there is a lot of companies talking about VTOLs, and then there is a big hype about like there is a lot of power. But when you talk about conventional uh, aircrafts, we don't need that much power as we need for uh, VTOLs. So that would mean that maybe we don't need high power. Maybe that will give us a better life uh, expectancy and durability uh, requirements different than uh, CTOLs. And that will make a problem for Richard because, for example, you need to make a cell which is optimized towards one versus the other. So that would be one one thing that... I don't know how the industry will go in that direction. Which which part will you serve more? Will you serve the VTOLs with high power and or CTOLs with lower power and then uh, different durability targets? So that, that is one of the things that, that's maybe interesting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's uh, we, we currently take, I would say, a bit of a um, portfolio approach to our customers. And what I mean by this is this industry is so early and uncertain that, you know, it, you cannot bet everything on one customer's success because, you know, one is, okay, we don't know if VTOL or CTOL is going to be the predominant volumes this decade. And we certainly don't know which specific customers are going to make it or not make it. So, so we kind of have a portfolio of customers with different, um, let's say, parameters that are attractive, you know, so there's sort of the technical parameters, uh, customers for which our product is a great technical fit. Um, there's kind of business parameters, like which customers have more money <laughs> to pay for engineering services and so forth. And then there's also the bet on which customers are more real and pragmatic and will actually get to volumes 
um, in a realistic time frame. And so it's kind of a balance of all these different factors to have to build up this uh, customer portfolio. I think as to the specific question on VTOL versus CTOL in terms of cell designs and, and chemistry designs, um, uh, you you should get longer life uh, because you don't have these emergency landing requirements in uh, CTOL. So, so that is certainly nice. And I, I do think CTOL has a much uh, clearer path to certification, which is also nice. Uh, that being said, CTOL also gets, I think, for whatever reason, much less attention and investment compared to the VTOL community, because I guess VTOL is a totally new mode of transit with, you know, uh, potentially, you know, very, very large volumes, whereas CTOL was kind of a uh, replacement for existing, at least, you know, people see it as a replacement for existing uh, aircraft designs. Um, so I, I think VTOL will likely get a certification faster and have an early lead would be my prediction. But then with VTOL catching up and, and, and exceeding it by sort of um, late in the decade in terms of aggregate volumes. Uh, I think that the one point to make though is everyone at the end of the day cares about fast charge, whether it's VTOL or CTOL, because they want to turn around that aircraft in, in you know, 20, 30 minutes on the ground potentially. Uh, so even if you don't need a lot of discharge power, you probably still need pretty fast charging. And st that still leads you into a territory that you know, at least looks like something like a balanced you know, energy power cell, not a pure, I, I don't think a pure energy cell will ultimately make sense even for a CTOL um, application. The, the, other, the, the other aspect is also just DCIR and you know, does that make sense as well for, for, uh, for management and weight perspective? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I agree with you. I mean, the, um, as I work with CETOL, not VTOL, so yes, from charging perspective, you still need power. It's not as high as the discharge required by CETOL, uh, by VTOLs, but yeah, it's it's also high. And one more thing is that um, the industry now for, as most of you know, the aviation industry is really, uh, if you can say, legalized. There's a lot of requirements, a lot of, um, you need to go through a long path for certification. And now when it comes to electric aviation, I mean, it's still um, un, not very clear known path. There is a lot of things that then the uh, authorities are trying to look at how to solve this problem, how to solve that. A lot of um, discussions and lots of new means of compliance coming up as drafts and we discuss them together. We try to find what's the best solution. So I think in the next maybe 10 years, the industry will shift a lot towards something. I don't know what will be this thing, but towards something which will be clearer than now. So it's also a bet for battery manufacturers. What will you do? For example, for a thermal propagation, which designs will you take? Will you take which bet will you take that will be accepted by FAA versus IASA, for example, because they are not 100% aligned, you know? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, the, we are starting to build up a significant certification expertise in the house as well. And having those negotiations directly with both authorities, because I think to your point, the, the, the regulations are so immature and, and currently not harmonized. And so it really does, at this point, still require really just direct, you know, one-on-one -on -one, um, engagement to figure out that, that, that sort of common pathway. Yeah, same here. Yeah, we are in the same situation as well. So it's hopefully in a couple of years, we will understand exactly how it will and it will shape everyone. But it's still it's, it's a bet. I think it's a much harder bet than uh, electric um, for automotive. I come from automotive originally. So it's much harder bet in aerospace due to that the authorities and how to certify a plane is much harder than a uh, car. So 
I hope that my company will be one of the companies that will uh, will go through that and, and will succeed. And I don't know if you have any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And also, I think someone I just saw is Divik. Divik, very good to see you again. Do you have a question? Hi, Simon. Good to see you. I don't know how much I would miss this, but I mean, like, fortunately, today I said, OK, let me go back onto Clubhouse. Uh, very interesting conversations. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I mean, it's not it's not a question per se, but uh, which I wanted to put to Richard. But Basim, uh, since you were talking about it, you also did speak about the fact that, you know, a hybrid battery pack with this power and energy cell which helps in cruising and so on and so forth, right? I mean, even even if you, uh, I mean, you've already extrapolated it to an aviation industry where there is no real uh, precedence that has been set in the automotive industry where a hybrid battery has been successful. I mean, how would you want to defend the fact that if it's not successful in, I mean, here also you're looking at acceleration and cruise, right? So if it's not successful on a gasoline, I mean, I just want to, Get your thoughts on how do you foresee that being the line for an aviation industry itself? Um, okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe I was not clear in that. Sorry, sorry. Go, Richard. So, yeah, I, I think Basim was saying more hybrid in terms of energy and power cells. And it sounds like your question, Divik, is on hybrid electric with combustion. Oh, no, 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 Richard. In fact, uh, mine, was, uh, uh, mine was clearly to a hybrid cell where it's an energy cell and a power cell. Right. Oh, okay. And you're using a power cell for your acceleration, and uh, otherwise you're using it for cruise, right? I mean, that's that's what you said, right, Basim? Yeah, but but I I think maybe I was not clear in that. It's um, my point is that that is maybe uh, applicable or can be really studied in depth when it comes to VTOLs, due to the fact that you need to you need a high power sudden high power for this discharge power to take off. But when you talk about CTOLs, yes, you still have you want high power, and you need high power at low sock. Um, due to that, you need to be able to do uh, go around. So you need to be able to take off. You need to be able to reach your destination. You need to be able to land the plane. You need to be able to do something called go around, meaning that you need to have the same takeoff power you had in the beginning by the end of the state of charge. And then you need to find uh, this, uh, another alternate airport with a specific requirement when it comes to how many miles or how many minutes, and then you need to be able to land. <clears throat> so that's not very applicable for CTOLs, but when it comes to VTOLs, maybe it will be an idea that you have a, play, a, a battery only used for, optimized for just the takeoff for the VTOL. But that is something that needs to be studied because maybe, as Richard was saying in the beginning, maybe it doesn't make really much sense when you study it. But I don't think it makes much sense at all for CTOs. But VTOs, maybe. It's something that maybe that needs to be studied. Right. No, I got that. But uh, no, my question was, I, I, did, I did understand uh, uh, what you said. But my question was, this has not even happened in automobiles, right? I mean, even in automobiles, your acceleration are where your surges are. So, you know, there's a very strong case for a power cell in an automobile application. Uh, I mean, I'm just setting a precedence. I mean, uh, uh, EVTOL or a CVTOL is something which is a little far off, but I've not seen that happen in the automotive industry itself. So is there a reason as to why it's not really taken off? I mean, the whole hybridization of a battery pack? I, I, I don't remember exactly which company, but one company maybe came two months ago with some kind of a concept like that where you have half of the battery as power optimized, half is energy optimized. But I'm not remember which, I need to, I don't know if someone from the panel remembers which company came with that uh, design. 
it was some time ago. I'm not sure it, when it will reach a, a proper uh, um, product. But when you look at energy optimized versus uh, power optimized and where you draw the thin line, right? Because it's, it's not, um, I don't know, maybe Richard can, or others can talk about it uh, deeper. It's not a clear black and white anymore. So it's not like you have a, you can maybe, yeah, you, can, you have a story too. Yep, yep. I mean, I think you're probably talking about our next energy, which does a, a hybrid uh, battery design, but it's not, as far as I can tell, an energy power hybrid. It's a chemistry hybrid with um, LFP and then a, a more advanced next gen uh, chemistry. And it's more like a utilization argument that you use the LFP, even though it's lower energy density, because it's cheap. And, you can cycle it so many times, and then you have your high energy as more of like a range extension. So that was more hybridization of energy densities. Um, um, and that, I mean, that certainly is not going to work in aviation because you just need as much energy as possible, but I don't think it's actually an energy power hybrid. And I, I feel like at least my speculation on this in the EV industry is that the needs for power and energy are not so different that the trade-off ends up being worth it in the sense that like the power that you need is not so great that you end up with a cell that's like, you know, three times lower in energy density than an energy cell. It's like maybe, you know, 20% lower. And increasingly, you know, there are cells that actually do both pretty respectably well without having a significant energy hit uh, with newer materials and cell design. So I feel the kind of energy power trade-off is becoming less of a trade-off over time as cell designs improve. And then with looking metal as well, you know, it's even less of a trade-off. So, so it doesn't seem like we're moving in that direction because I guess cells and materials are getting better and you don't need to trade. The trade-off isn't so sparkly anymore. Got that. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Basim. Fantastic. Thank you. And I also love a bit of side chat here. I think it's good. We have some very knowledgeable people definitely in this room on the panel as well. And with this, we're pretty much in our last 10 minutes. So now there's a question. Is there anybody here has any other additional questions? Heinz, do you have another one? Yeah. yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, Daniel is my, my, my real name. Uh, sorry for my nick here. Um, yeah, I, I currently work for Lilium and I'm in charge of, for, for the battery testing operations there. So obviously I cannot talk about, about this in specific, but I probably be able to answer some more like general questions. Uh, what is important in, um, with regards to battery designs? We talked, I think, a lot about chemistry and uh, the need of being like um, very left, uh, right up in the corner of the Ragona plot having like really high power and energy density. I think every battery engineer knows that um, this always uh, um, goes a little bit in conflict with um, safety requirements. Um, therefore, I think uh, personally, at least uh, that's my personal opinion, not, not my company's opinion, um, that like hybrid architectures where we would have energy optimized cells and power optimized cells and the ability um, of, of the battery pack itself to actively route power and having different state of, uh, states of charge um, with, uh, within the battery. Um, this, this, I think, um, especially for the uh, diversion scenarios where you have to approve um, um, go-arounds, um, as, as Bazam said, um, uh, will be very important to have like certain high power um, battery systems which allow you to carry out safely um, emergency scenarios. And I think um, 
there there are certain battery architectures like multi-level leveled architectures of batteries um where you would at least be in theory able to use very different rated cells so very high c rate cells and very um low c rate cells but high energy density um cells um so I, I personally think, and, and another um, challenge I see in, in having structural integrated batteries, I think p at least parts of the battery um, sh should be structured uh, uh, and be part of the structure in the aircraft, and maybe other parts of, of, of the battery should be swappable, um, at, at least for the VTOL space, that's um, to minimize go uh, to minimize also the, like the, the, um, the service times on the ground to recharge uh, the vehicle. Um, I think there's some smart ideas around, but I have, to be honest, not seen um, a lot of uh, aerospace company really carrying out the 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 battery challenge as I would love to see this as a as a battery engineer, to be honest. I cannot agree more. <laughs> really, <laughs> I, I I also was thinking about structural batteries for a long time, and I don't think the companies are going in that direction. I think because a lot of companies are really worried about certification, and a lot of the battery designs is basically a box in a box in a box uh, to try to minimize uh, the risk of the certification when it comes to thermal propagation. So I am all in, as a battery engineer, also all in for structural batteries and trying to swap what we can. I don't think we can, I don't believe that we can swap like the big batteries also for mechanical, as Richard said, and also when it comes to maintainability and serviceability and that you will have to open and close something that if you will do wrong it can be dangerous you know that kind of scenarios but i totally agree with you yeah yeah i agree yeah i also want to thank everybody here especially richard mars and simon for this nice room and i also want to shout out to roger hi roger uh haven't you seen in a while uh hope to see you soon again yes absolutely likewise it's been too long Fantastic. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Roger. Mayana, did you have one other thing you want to add? Yeah, it's uh, about regulation. You, you explain, uh, Richard, that the regulation is immature. Yeah. I see that uh, risk, let's say, because if you are, you need to choose as, as you develop, no? you need to choose. But if you are aligned for the further future regulation, that's okay. But if you're not, then maybe it's a high risk. Then the other uh, option did, uh, from the perspective of regulation, did you think that would the regulation comes up down to the battery? The, as you explain, the traceability of the manufacturing and the robust of all that uh, flows? Or what are your thoughts on the future uh, needs of regulation? Thank you. Um, so if I understand your question correctly, it's what are the future needs of regulation to, to regulate batteries properly? Yeah, but uh, but about your thoughts and what did you think it's it's a, a huge reach of Kuber uh, thinking about the new common regulation, the future, or did, did you think that it not go so down that maybe you choose something else on Kuber that maybe the future regulation doesn't allow you to use? That's, right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I think um, that probably was a risk for a lot of the electric aviation companies um, because they all got started you know, five or more years ago. And a lot of them have designed aircraft really not knowing what kind of requirements would be needed to go through certification. And I, I do think you see a lot of that with some of the earlier players that already have significant amounts invested in aircraft designs and that are butting up against the realities of certification. Um, with Kuberg, I mean, I, I guess we're fortunate in some sense, in the sense because we are only just now starting our certification journey, where the regulations, while they're still uh, in disagreement, are, I think, becoming uh, more mature over the next couple of years. And I think we have an opportunity, and it feels like the right time, to drive that discussion with the um, industry and with the regulators to get towards a harmonized set of regulations. I think the 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 the, the position in with EASA at this point is reasonably clear. You know, you could debate whether it's the right regulation or not, but at least it is reasonably clear. I think the two areas of significant opportunity are for the FAA to propose something beyond just DO three eleven A that could make sense for the industry. And really, I think for harmonization to happen between FAA and uh, EASA, because having divergent standards really will serve no one at the end of the day. It becomes, it becomes you know, impossible to design a product if you have two very different um, sets of certification requirements. So I think those are the two big opportunities. Um, and, and I think there's, I mean, there's, it seems like there's political elements to this. I think the FAA always believes, and well, historically they have been the leader in setting certification standards and with EASA following. And I feel with now FAA, with the, the recent issues they've had with the 737 and also falling a little behind on electric aviation, EASA has sort of taken a step forwards. And now, but I think the FAA still believes, I suspect this is not from any conversations with the FAA currently, but from what I've heard, the FAA still believes they will ultimately write the regulations and EASA will conform to those regulations. So, so I think there's an interesting political element here as well as to how we get to harmonization. But 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 it must happen because otherwise, really, it is not to the benefit of anyone in any geography. Okay, thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Richard. And I think with this, we're pretty much at the end for today. And, you know, we spoke about this before. Time really tends to fly. And I think we have covered quite a lot today from... You know, like again, as I mentioned, your story, you know, from, from your startup, but also kind of covering the requirement for aviation, introducing the topic of battery powered aviation. And I think also with all the great panelists and participants here, really covered a lot of topics from, from rates to recycling to traceability and a lot of topics in between. So this just really lets me to, to thank Richard uh, for this fantastic introduction and also be here for all of our questions. And I think that's, that's really, really appreciated. Um, as mentioned, you can also find the recording on the Battery Insiders podcast if you just look for Battery Insiders on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. You're going to find it there in a few days, as well as a reflection of this session Mayom, Richard and I will do right after this session as well. And maybe then it just allows me to give a quick glimpse in our next session. So we have these sessions once a month at the moment. So the next time we're going to have it on the 3rd of September. And there's also one other event I want to mention in September, which is our Battery Associates Battery Day, our annual flagship event. Um, you can find information about it on battery.com 
oh, sorry, batteryday.info, and you will get to the registration page, and registrations are free. So um, feel free to, to sign up for that and find lots of interesting discussions on there as well. As with this, just for today, I want to say a big thank you to Richard and everyone who shared their questions and insights today, and see you all very soon.